thank you guys for leading us in worship so well. And I agree with Zach. I had way too much dessert. I think I had like three pecan pies by myself. If you add it all up, which is what you're supposed to do on Thanksgiving. Uh, if you have your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 today. And we'll spend several weeks probably in chapter 5. Because chapter 5 is, uh, is a great kind of illustration of the way that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be and how it's not supposed to be. Uh, you kind of feel this tension of the people of God not acting as they are supposed to and Nehemiah trying to correct the ship. And it's the same thing that the church of Jesus is supposed to be doing when we look at what Nehemiah is doing. And what we find out in the first few verses here in Nehemiah chapter 5 is what the biggest enemy of the church of Jesus Christ is. What, what actually kills local churches like ours? And the answer is, is that it's nothing from the outside. In chapter 4, we saw all the enemies coming in on Nehemiah, and it was no problem. Why? Because God was fighting for them. But what we see in chapter 5 is a cancer that is growing inside of the church, and Nehemiah is very threatened by it, because it will devour the church. And that is when the people inside the church begin to take advantage of and attack each other. When the people inside the church begin to look out for their own self-interest above the interest of Christ's kingdom and the interest of one another. And uh, Jesus picks up on this in the New Testament, and he tells us this is going to be the most important thing for you guys. As long as you guys remain unified, as long as you guys love each other like you love yourselves and like, you, like I have loved you, then you'll be fine. But the moment you begin to hate one another, gossip against one another, begin to consider yourself more important than one another, is the moment that there will be a downfall of the church. Now, we obviously know that the gates of hell will not prevail over the church, which is the, the total church of Jesus Christ. But it can prevail over churches like this one because I've seen it. I've seen many churches who were at one time vibrant and yet they died. And the reason why they died had nothing to do with the government, had nothing to do with people who were slandering them, had nothing to do with outside forces, but it had everything to do with the inside forces. The church becomes like a snake that eats itself if we're not careful. It will devour itself. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, looking at verses 13 through 15. It says, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. Today in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we're going to look at three ways that by devouring each other, we actually devour the church or the movement of God. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for a church that loves one another. God, I'm grateful that uh, as we gather together, I'm gathered with people who genuinely care for one another. And uh, yet, God, I know that we have to continue to talk about this. We have to be reminded of this fact that we are to love others ahead of ourselves. That true greatness is not trying to rule over people, but serving people. Because, God, we so easily forget it. And when we forget it, we are in danger of the movement of God here in Ascent Church being devoured. God, I do not want us to become the type of church that honestly cares more about ourselves than we do as the whole of the community. God, may you stir in our hearts places where we as individuals need to repent. Places where we have maybe put ourselves above the interest of others. And God, may we do what needs to be done so that we can be a community that loves one another in the way that you've called us to love one another. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. Amen. Amen. So as uh, we jump into uh, Nehemiah in the first verse, we see the first thing that we devour 
when we devour one another. And that is we devour God's favor. Verse 1 would be very scary for any Israelite reading. A whole bunch of red flags would begin to go up. Let's just read it together. Verse 1 says, There was widespread outcry, you should underline that word, from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. You should underline that. The two problems here, the two red flags, are there's an outcry. Now, throughout Scripture, when there's an outcry, God responds. When the oppressed cry out to God, God shows up. We see that in Exodus. The people are enslaved. They cry out. God says, I've heard your cry, and I'm coming to save you. The problem is, is that when we're in the community of God, it should be the last place where we have to outcry. This should be the answer to the outcry. And yet what we find here is that they're outcrying, not against outside forces. They're outcrying against their own Jewish countrymen. The people who are God's people are the ones who are abusing them. And we'll find out later what they're doing is that they're giving mortgages and they're giving loans to their fellow Jews so that they can have food to eat. But they're giving loans with like 30 to 40 percent interest rates. They're completely taking advantage of those who simply need to feed their family. And so the people, the oppressed people, begin to cry out because they've been oppressed, not by the enemies, but by their own people. Now, Nehemiah was very concerned, as we all ought to be concerned when we do this, because that means God's favor is in desperate danger of leaving us. In fact, that's what drew the Israelites into slavery in the first place. The reason why Nehemiah has had to lead them from Babylon and begin to rebuild Jerusalem, part of the reason was because the people of God before slavery were devouring one another. We look at Isaiah chapter 5. This is a prophecy before the exile. It says this in verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord's armies is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but he saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but he heard cries of despair. In other words, when God looks in at Israel, or, or now as us in the New Testament, when God looks in at a sent church, you know what he expects to see? Justice. Meaning we're making things right for people who have been wronged. And when he looks in at a sent church and he sees us taking advantage and devouring one another, it makes God very upset. As Ephesians would say, it quenches the Spirit. The Holy Spirit leaves this place when we begin to devour one another. And that should terrify us. In fact, if you want to know, how can we know that the Holy Spirit is in a church? You know, you go to a church, you visit a church service, you're like, man, is the Holy Spirit here? How can we know? Well, number one, you might think, you know, it's the singing or the preaching. You know, that, that singer, man, he really raised the hairs on my neck. That was an awesome song. You know, Zach must have the Holy Spirit with him. Well, the truth is, is Taylor Swift can make the hairs rise on your neck. It doesn't mean she has the Holy Spirit. She might have some spirit, but I'm not going to say it's holy. My wife would probably disagree. She loves Taylor Swift, but that's, I'm more godly. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, She's in there, so I'm not going to say much. But, uh, no, people can sing without the Holy Spirit. That's not, that's not how you tell the Holy Spirit is there. Now, the Holy Spirit can show up in worship, absolutely. But that's not how we know that He's with us. It's certainly not the preaching either, because some of my favorite preachers, I mean, guys I looked up to, I listened to them, I listened to one of their best sermons on Sunday, and then on Tuesday it comes out they've been having an affair on their wife and the church falls apart. And you know, I, I could talk very well without having the Holy Spirit with me if I have talent. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's not with me when I preach. I pray that He is, but that's not how we tell. Uh, is it, you might say, well, is it when the spiritual gifts show up? I mean, if you walk into a church and everybody's talking in tongues, they're blowing kazookas and waving banners, you think the Holy Spirit's got to be there. You'll either be freaked out or think the Holy Spirit is there. You know, is that the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit there if all of a sudden people started getting healed? You know, if, if I were to say, come on up here and you were in a wheelchair and I said, I put my hand on you and you stood up, you might think, yes, that's how I would know the Holy Spirit was here. But friends, be very careful. Because Satan can do tricks also. 
In fact, in the book of Exodus, when uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and uh, Moses and Aaron come and they start doing tricks, you know, they throw their staff on the ground and it turns into a snake and they think, we got Pharaoh now because he's going to obviously know we got God on our side. And then Moses and Aaron get terrified because Pharaoh's magicians are able to do the exact same things. You see, just because something good like healing is going on, that can mean the Spirit is here. I pray for it. God could do it. Absolutely. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the Spirit of God is with us. The only indicator we're given in the New Testament that you can know that the Holy Spirit is with a community of people is love. When you come and you see the people loving one another, that is when you know, friends, the Holy Spirit is there. The preacher might be terrible, dry as bones. The songs might not be on tune at all. Uh, which, you know, sometimes the preacher is dry here and sometimes we're not on tune. And, and there might be no healings going on. And yet, if you find the people putting their own interests below the interests of others, loving one another as Jesus has loved them, you can know the Holy Spirit is in this church. Now you might say, Blake, I don't believe you. And I love when you don't believe me because then I get to read you more Bible verses. Uh, here's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, if then... There is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit. Do you see that? Any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. In other words, if you're a church at all, if you actually love Jesus, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should, not, should look not only to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Or Jesus, John 13, 35, he says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Now you can see the end of the verse, but if you couldn't see the end of the verse, what would you expect? Everyone will know your disciples if you know a lot about the Bible. Or everyone would know you are my disciples you know, if you sing really good songs and, and people worship and they even put their hands in the air while you're worshiping. <laughs> That's not what he says, though. He says, you will know that you are my disciples if... You love one another. Now, I actually used to look at this verse, and I would look at the love part. And I would say, that's how we know a church has truly got the Spirit of God, because they're loving the community. They're feeding the poor. They're doing things outside of the church, which we ought to be doing. But friends, do you notice what Jesus says? It's by the way we love one another. It should be by the way when people look at us, they go, those people are nuts. They love one another. They have different political views. Some are rich. Some are poor. These people would never, ever get along outside of Jesus Christ. And yet there they are putting interests, their own interests, below the interests of others. They're loving one another. That is how we can know that church has the Holy Spirit. Here's the last one. 1 John 2, 9-11. I could read 3,000 verses, but I'll just stop with this one. It says, The one who says he is in the light, but hates his brother or sister, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brothers and sisters remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in darkness and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Friends, if you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible would say you're not a Christian at all. (laughs) You've got no assurance of salvation if it doesn't stir in you love for God's children. Which, by the way, makes sense. I mean, if you told me you love me and then you said, but I hate your daughter and wife, I would say you don't love me. And I certainly don't love you. How can you say you love me if you don't love the people that I love the most? Who does God love the most? Well, friends, it's everybody in this room. And, and, and you say, well, you know, some of them are hypocritical or hard to get along with. And I say, yeah, you're hypocritical and hard to get along with sometimes, too. 
But we're supposed to love one another because God loves them and we love God. It is a sign that we are truly a believer. When you find yourself loving someone difficult to love because they love Jesus also, you can know the Holy Spirit must be in me because I would never be able to love this guy if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. Some of you guys might think that when you interact with me. You think, man, God's Spirit must be in me. Ephesians 4, 30-32, this is uh, the verse I referenced earlier. It says, And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You are sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness... You see what grieves God's Holy Spirit? What quenches Him? Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. I always heard that verse kind of taken out of context and it was like, don't watch a rated R movie or don't listen to secular music because that'll quench the Holy Spirit. When in reality, you read the whole verse, what quenches the Holy Spirit? It's not a rated R movie. It is when we do not love one another. That's how important and key this is. And I know for a lot of us, church has become something individual. I come to church so that I get filled up. I want to hear a good sermon or sing good songs. It's all about me and my spiritual relationship with God. And God would say, no, I brought you guys together for one another. It's the community that is supposed to be there. And if we do not love one another, we are in danger of losing God's favor in this place. Uh, I heard an old preacher's tell. You know, they have wives' tells. Well, we have preachers' tells. I have no idea if it's true. It's probably not. Uh, But it's a good story. And... uh, it's a story about a woman who was going to church. She was down on her luck, and it was the first time she was going to try to go to church service. And she was very poor, so she only had one set of clothes, and they were dirty. And she walked into the church, and the preacher was preaching. And after the service, she wanted to go up and tell the preacher, thank you for the sermon, and ask for prayer. And as she walked up to him, the preacher began to scowl at her. And as she got closer to him, he said, young lady, do you really think that those clothes honor God in God's house? And she was embarrassed. She didn't want to tell him that it was the only pair of clothes that she had. So she said, I'm so sorry, sir. What, what should I wear to God's house? And he said, you really don't know. He said, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and pray about it. Ask God what he thinks you ought to wear. And then we'll see what you show up in next week. Well, the week goes on. And uh, the next week, the, the pastor is already up preaching. The service has started. And here comes the lady in late. And she's wearing the exact same dirty clothes. Well, after the service, the lady uh, comes back up to the pastor to shake his hand to leave. And he says, are you serious? I told you not to wear those clothes in God's house. How could you? I thought I told you to ask God what you ought to wear. And she said, well, I did ask God, sir. And uh, he said, well, what did God say? She said, well, God said he didn't know because he's never been here. (laughs) We don't want to be that kind of church, friends. (laughs) You see, a church where there is no love, it doesn't matter how good the preaching is or if I can speak in tongues or... If Zach can sing like an angel, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we do not have love. All that is extra stuff. All of that is whipped cream on top. But what Jesus wants is a church that loves each other. What what God has always wanted is Israel to love one another. And when they don't, guess what happens? They lose God's favor. And if we don't, guess what happens? We will lose God's favor. That's number one. Number two is when we devour one another, we devour God's work. The work that he wants to do through us. God wants to do a work in you, but he also wants to do a work through us. Fargo, America should look different if we're here for five years. Northwest Oklahoma should look different if we're here for 15 years. Because God wants to do a work through us. The work that Nehemiah was given was to build the wall and to rebuild Jerusalem. And and look at how them devouring one another threatens that work. Verse 2 of Nehemiah chapter 5. It says, some were saying, we are sons and daughters are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Verse 2 is a request off of work. They're going to Nehemiah and they're saying, hey, 
well, we're so glad that you guys are building this wall, but my, uh, my wife is at home and she's hungry. So I need to leave here. I need to go to the other country, uh, other nations and work so that I can make money and buy grain for my family. I cannot work on the work that God has for us because walls don't feed families. So this is great, Nehemiah, but we don't have any money. So we've got to go out and do these things to make money for our family. And by the way, it is very hard for us as a church to do the things God wants us to do if we don't take care of each other in the first place. And we're supposed to do a lot of good in the world. We're supposed to represent Jesus. That's what we say. We're supposed to go out and give food to the hungry, homes to the homeless. We're supposed to go out and adopt orphans. We're supposed to go out and throw these huge celebrations where we bring in bounce houses and barbecue and we eat good food and we invite the community in for free so they can celebrate Jesus with us. We're supposed to do all of these things. And yet, how can we provide food for the hungry if we have hungry in our own midst? How can we provide homes for the homeless if we have homeless in our own midst? How can we do these things if we're not already taking care of ourselves? The Apostle Paul says that you're worse than an unbeliever if you do not take care of your own household. Now, men, that applies to you and your family, but it applies to pastors and church families as well. Who am I to go out and take care of the world when there's people in my flock who are not taken care of? But we have to take care of the flock here, otherwise we will be impotent out in the world, and we will eventually die. This is what happens here. They're destroying God's work. We also see an example of this in the New Testament church uh, in Acts 6, 1 through 7. I'm not going to read it all, but the disciples were increasing in number. It's the early church, and uh, everybody's coming in, and it's a great time of growth. And then there's a problem in chapter 6. And the problem is, is that some of the widows in the church don't have enough food. And what does Peter say? Peter says, well, we can't stop doing the work of God, but we've got to figure this out because if we don't figure this out, then guess what? The work of God is going to stop. And so they assign deacons and they make a way for the people to eat. And then they go back out and the gospel is spread. But friends, we will devour God's work if we are devouring one another. It will not work. And we're supposed to be out and preaching the gospel, but we can't preach good news to people if it's not good news to us. And it ought to be. If you're in this place, the love of Jesus ought to overflow. You see, the church is, is not like a, a group of people who just pour love out into the world. That's what I used to think. You know, we're all supposed to just kind of love in our everyday lives. No, what actually happens in the church is it's like a, a, a boiling pot of water. What happens is it boils to a point and then all of a sudden the water begins to come out. This is what happens every time I try to cook macaroni and cheese. <laughs> I, you know, I get it started and I don't think about it. And then all of a sudden I, I run into the kitchen and water's everywhere. Why? Because it boiled over. That's what's supposed to be a picture of what happens in the church. I love you and you love me. And this place is so full of love that it begins to boil. And it boils over into the community. And we love the community out of the love that we have for one another and the love we have for God. And if we don't, if we just try to love without loving first what's going on here, the work of God will not last very long because walls don't feed people. <laughs> you know, when we're hungry, it's hard to focus on what God has for us. So that's number two. We devour God's work. And finally, number three is we devour God's promises. We devour God's promises. And this is what happens to the Israelites as well. When they devoured each other, they were devouring the promises that God had for them. Now, it's interesting, you know a little bit about your Bible to know the promises that God made to his people. He made a promise to Abraham. He told Abraham, uh, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars one day. And you're going to have a a nation, a a land that is yours, the promised land. And in this land, you will be a free people. So we see they're going to be numerous. They're going to have uh, a free land, free people, and they're going to own the land. Now, what we see in verses uh, 2, 3, and 5 is that a lot of things are not going the way that they're supposed to be going. Now, verse 2 is good. It says that they have numerous children. And uh, the thing about numerous children is that's numerous mouths to feed, right? Like children are a blessing. But I couldn't do three more right now because I would be broke. 
you have to have a lot of money, a lot of grain to feed a lot of mouths. And so the good thing is, yes, God kept his promise. They are a numerous people. But verse 3, we see it begin to go downhill. They don't own the land. Why do they not own the land? Because they've mortgaged it out. They've had to. They had to mortgage their own homes so they could feed their family. And they've mortgaged it to their own fellow Jewish Israelites. Or because of what their Israelites have done to them, they've had to mortgage it to other countries. So the Israelites don't even own the land that God has for them. And then in verse 5, we see probably the worst yet, and that is that their children are enslaved. They've had to sell their daughters and their sons into slavery so that they could be able to provide for their family. Now you think, how archaic, we would never do that. You guys do it too. If you have debt, you cannot quit your job, can you? Like, you know, it doesn't matter how bad your boss is, you've got to pay your mortgage next month. You've got to pay that car note next month because you don't actually own your stuff. You know, you, I call it my house, but it's not really my house. It's the bank's house. And I'll tell you how I know, because if I stop paying, the bank's going to say, hey, get out of our house. <laughs> your car is not really your car. It's Ford Motor Company's car or whoever you financed it through. And if you don't believe me, just stop paying it. And all of a sudden you'll see your car being towed away because it's not your car and you can't quit your job. I love Dave Ramsey. He talks a lot about finances and getting out of debt. And he said one of the things that was really freeing for him when he got out of debt for the first time was he realized if he didn't like what his boss was doing, he could just quit. Nobody else he worked with could do that. He said, I could just show up and my boss was a jerk, say, you know what? I quit. I'm out. And the boss would go, what? You're out? He said, yeah, I don't have, to, I don't have a mortgage on my home. You can't take anything from me. I'm a free man. Well, most of us are not free men, and we see here that it's gotten so bad that they've sent their own children off to work so that they can pay for things. The difference is, is we often do that because we're foolish. They did it because they had to, because there was a famine and the king's taxes were so high, which I know is really hard for us to imagine that there'd be a time in which there was inflation and the king's taxes were overwhelming the people. I know you guys, you can't imagine that. But that was what was going on for the Israelites here. They're devouring God's promises. And you know what's so sad is that they could have had all of these promises, If they weren't devouring one another, the land would have been theirs. They could have paid for it all. If they wouldn't have devoured one another, their children wouldn't have been slaves. And yet, because they looked out for their own interests, the nobles wanted to become rich off of the people, they voided God's promises. It wasn't because God wasn't faithful, it was because of the unfaithfulness of the people. And you might think, well, how foolish of the Israelites. They had it all right there in front of them. You know, and they did this to their own people. Wouldn't it have been benefit to them, Blake, for them to care for the interest of others? And I would say, yes, it is foolish. But friends, we ought to be careful because we're pretty foolish as well. And when I say we, I mean the royal we, not just you guys in this room. I mean the church of Jesus Christ on the whole is pretty foolish. The whole world is before us. I heard a certain uh, politician running for governor of Oklahoma pray a prayer. And, uh, you know, it's fine. I'm glad that he prayed. But he said a line in there that I didn't really like. He said, we, we pray that, Jesus, you would claim all of Oklahoma. And I almost threw a remote at my television. You know why? Because he's already claimed it. There's not one inch of Oklahoma that's not Jesus' Christ. It's already his. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He owns Oklahoma. He owns all of the countries. He owns every ounce of the ocean. And it's ours for the taking. It's right there for us as a Christian church to take it. It's not because Jesus needs to you know, work a little harder to get it for us. No, it's because we have to obey the promises of God. And if we obey God, all of it will be ours. It's already been claimed by Jesus. You know, it's like if I were to go to the, the Ford dealership and buy you a car and I put it in your name and I said, you know, they're going to come down and pick it up in a little bit. And all you had to do was go pick up the car and you wouldn't go pick it up. Uh, you wouldn't say, well, Blake didn't claim the car. No, you'd say, I'm a fool for not going and getting the thing that has already been claimed for me. Uh, Gary North, who's a, uh, he's an economic 
guy, and he's a Christian also, but he, he went back and he looked at you know, the, the past 2,000 years of church history, and he came to this conclusion. This is just one command of God. He said if Christians would have tithed for the last 2,000 years, they would literally own the entire world. If they would just obey that one command, if they would tithe, the tithe is to give your first 10% back to God. If they would do that, not, not even the generous giving that Jesus talks about in the New Testament, but if they just trusted God and tithe, they would own the entire world. You know, the average Christian gives 2% of their giving to the church. 2%. And you think, well, times are tough. The average Christian gave 3.9% during the Great Depression. The Great Depression. And uh, really, it's never really truly exceeded over 7%, even when the church was at its highest. And yet, I found these stats really interesting, that if every Christian, there's a hundred some million people who claim to be Christians, but we'll even we'll trim it down a little bit because not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. But if everybody who was a Christian that actually attended church were to tithe for one year, it would give churches $165 billion of extra revenue. And with that money in one year, we could make the entire world literate in five years. So if you take the money we made and we spread it out over five years, in five years we could make sure that every community was literate and had a Bible in their hands. We could end the water crisis in third world countries, like literally end it. Everybody would have clean drinking water in the world. And we would still have enough left over to get 50,000 churches. And there's about 100,000 churches, but I cut it in half because we don't want to give it to the people who call themselves churches but aren't actually churches. You know what I mean? Like if their pastor is a drag queen, they don't get this money. So I'm just saying, that was probably offensive. But if we cut it in half, we say 50,000 churches... We could give each of those 50,000 churches $1 million. Think about that. Think about all the churches. This is one year. We could get a million dollars. One year. Imagine if we did that over 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. What could happen? Christians would have the best schools educating kids. What we, would, we would own, literally, I mean, gosh, $1 million. We could probably own all of Fargo in just one year. <laughs> but Christians would literally own the entire world. You say, how foolish of the Israelites to not take the promises of God serious because of their unfaithfulness. <laughs> Friends, we are unfaithful, are we not? Because of our unfaithfulness, we have not fulfilled the promises that God has laid out for us. And the truth is, is the reason why, speaking specifically about the tithe, I'm just picking on you for that, but there's you know, a whole bunch of other commands. Uh, the reason why we don't is often because of our own self-interest. Say, I don't have enough to tithe. Well, I find it interesting that the average American budget has 35 to 45% of their money going to debt of some kind. You, know, you cry about giving 10% to God, but you'll easily give 30% away for a car that you don't even need to drive, to be honest. You know, you're driving it. People, I love the justifications we all make, and I'm tempted to do it as well. But it's like, well, my car's breaking down. Okay, so I could go get a new car for $15,000, or I could justify to myself an $85,000 truck to drive around in. Well, what do we often do? Well, we choose the car that we think is cool for ourselves. And then we complain when the pastor says anything about money. Why? Well, because I care about my interests. I don't care about the interests of all people. And yet if we did, can you imagine how much better the world would be? If we just started tithing, shoot, if some of us gave 5% or 8% to the work of God, what would happen in this community? What would happen in this world? We begin to claim the promises that God has for us. But when we devour one another, when we put our own interests above others, we devour the promises of God. Now, I know that this is very hard. And you know why it's very hard? Because you have a natural setting inside of you to be selfish. This is weird to the whole world to even talk about giving to others. It's one of the things that made the Christian community so odd to the world from the very beginning. Uh, it's like we're a phone that factory resets every night. 
And this is why you come to church every single Sunday, so you can be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you are not reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what happens is you go back into that factory mode of selfishness. And yet what we do every single week is we point ourselves to Jesus Christ who gives us the exact opposite. He turns everything on its head. And he says that the way up is actually by going down. The way to be great is not to rule, but to serve. And if you trust God and you rule, or if you trust God and you serve, then you will one day rule. God will exalt those who humble themselves. Uh, One of my favorite chapters, my favorite chapter in the Bible, and I'll close with this, Zach, if you guys want to go ahead and come back up, is uh, is Mark chapter 10. And one of my favorite scenes in Mark chapter 10 is uh, Jesus has this interaction with what we call the rich young ruler. And uh, he says, Jesus, I've obeyed all the commands, which is a lie. But he says, I've obeyed all the commands. What else do I need to do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus sees right through him and he says, okay, you need to give away all your money. And the reason why he says money is because he knew for this guy money was where his heart was. He's not telling you to give away all your money. He might be, but for most people he doesn't. But for this guy, he said, give away all your money and come follow me. And the guy went away sad. And it's the only time in the Gospel of Mark where it says Jesus was sad, which is really interesting. See, he was sad because he had to leave his money, and Jesus was sad that he loved his money more than him. And uh, after this kind of interaction, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Peter, look how, or Jesus, he says to Jesus, look how godly I am because I gave up everything to follow you. And I love Jesus' response because he understood that Jesus didn't, or Peter didn't get it. Peter thought he was giving something up, and Jesus said, no, by giving up yourself, you're gaining everything. Uh, it says this in verse 28. Peter began to look at him. Look, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus. Verse 29. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first now will be last, and the last will be first. That's hard to trust, and that's hard to believe, which is why we've got to look at the gospel, because Jesus didn't just say it, He lived it, didn't He? He came from the throne room of heaven, and He humbled Himself, poor, meek and mild, lived His life, and He never took a dollar from a follower throughout His entire ministry in the New Testament. We never see Him doing it. He only takes a coin from the mouth of a fish once to pay His taxes. (laughs) And He goes to the cross, and they put a crown of thorns on Him, to mock Him. And His throne, the throne that He deserves is a throne in heaven where the angels cry, Holy, Holy, Holy at all hours. And here He is completely humbled with a crown of thorns around His head, dying for the sake of my sins and your sins. And yet, what did God do? Philippians 2 tells us. He humbled Himself even to the point of being obedient to death on the cross. And after this, what did God do? He exalted Him. (laughs) At the end of Ephesians, it says He is far above every ruler and power and dominion Not only in this age, but in the age to come. And you say, Blake, what does that mean? And I say, I don't even know. (laughs) But I know Jesus is the ruler of everything, even the things I cannot even imagine. Because He humbled Himself, He was exalted. And God says the same is true for us. It's for you and for me. If I will humble myself and trust Him and pour myself out for others, God says, I'll take care of you. I will exalt you. We see it in the life of St. Paul, don't we? When you look at St. Paul, if you were to be there when he was alive, you'd see bruises on his eyes. You'd see that he was stoned. Paul's entire life, you know, when he would pray, he would say, pray for me, give me boldness. He wasn't like saying like I would, you know, like I'm nervous to talk in front of these people, so give me boldness. No, the kind of boldness Paul needed was vastly different. Like he would go to a town, preach gospel. They would stone him, pile him up with stones, and then he'd have a buddy come, make sure he was alive, check his pulse, pull him up, and Paul would get up and say, okay, what's next? 
That's the kind of courage Paul had. And if you were to look at Paul in that time, you would never guess that one day in London there'd be a St. Paul's Cathedral. You would never believe that one day, 2,000 years later, some redneck in Fargo, Oklahoma would be preaching the words that Paul had said. And yet this is what God does. If we humble ourselves, He exalts us. Let me pray. Father God, may we not be a church that devours ourselves. God, I am so grateful that we are a church that loves one another. But we've got work to do, as every church does. There are places where we can love one another better, and I pray that we would. I pray that as individuals, you would convict us of our sin, and we would repent. We would not rebel, but we would repent, and we would do what you've called us to do, trusting that just as you have risen Christ, you will raise us if we will humble ourselves before you. And friends, if you would, take about 20 seconds to say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Gracious God, give us the power by your Spirit to obey what you've called us to do. Keep us walking steadfastly towards the everlasting delights you have stored away for us, where moth and rust cannot destroy them. Support us by the strength of heaven, that we may never turn back or desire false pleasures that would disappear into nothing. As we pursue our heavenly journey by your grace, let us be known as people with no aim but that of a burning desire for you and for the good and salvation of our fellow brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's stand and sing, friends.